0: Beloved brothers and sisters, if you'd open your copy of God's Word again to 1 John. 1 John. We're going to continue looking at this beloved epistle today. Uh, trust, as we have done so over these past many weeks, that it has proven an encouragement, maybe conviction, encouragement your soul, it certainly has to mine. Today I'm going to call us to look specifically at chapter 2, verse 28, to chapter 3, verse 3. So if you would please stand together, brethren, let us hear the word of the Lord in faith. 1 John two twenty-eight to 3, verse 3. And now, little children, abide in him. That when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved... Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Father, take this word, we pray, and increase our faith in Jesus' name. Maybe seated, brethren. Well, as we come to the end of chapter 2 and turn the corner into chapter 3, what have you to first recall? Remember that up to this point, the Apostle John has been giving evidences to these troubled, challenged brethren at Ephesus, who have, been, uh, who have been assaulted, as it were, with false apostles, false teachers, proclaiming that they, in fact, have the light, that they are in the light, and yet they have spoken things which are untrue doctrinally about the person of Jesus Christ. They have misrepresented God. They have also Misrepresented God not only in terms of the doctrine of Jesus, but also in terms of the character of God uh, and in terms of uh, his, his morality. They have said clearly that you know, whether one loves those whom God loves, whether one loves as God loves, whether one hates what God hates is not really of the essence of the thing as much as just having this knowledge They relied heavily on their philosophies, on their man-made Christian derivatives, syncretism that they had, instead of leaning heavily and wholly upon the revelation of Jesus given to the twelve apostles, and specifically to Jesus, as John said, that all of the answer to the heresies, to the lies that were being promulgated in their midst by these false teachers, was answered by remembering not a doctrine per se, not a philosophy per se, but a person. John says the fact is is that we ourselves, the apostles, me, John, heard it from Jesus. We saw him. We beheld him. We touched him. It's not just the word little w, but we saw and we beheld the glory of God in grace and truth, the word, the living word. So while the words of men can be manipulated and changed and, 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 and twisted, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, to people's destruction, the living word, Jesus the word, never changes. And John is exhorting them to build their foundation, their hope, their faith, their confidence on that word. The living and risen word as revealed then to the apostles And given to the church through the Spirit and through the words that the Spirit Himself breathed out. So John has been giving, like I said, a threefold cycle of of tests: righteousness, love, doctoral integrity. He's already done this once in the first two chapters, and as we see, he's getting ready to do it a second time. John often we find in his gospel as well as in the epistle, works and and, and communicates in these cycles of threes. I won't go into all the examples, but there's lots of examples where this is something, uh, this triad form, form that John uses. And again, he has said it, he has focused on that the true light, abiding with the Lord in the true light, includes walking in righteousness, includes walking in love, true love, and walking in doctrinal integrity, truth. A Christian, John says, one who knows the living God in truth is one who does what is right, who loves his brethren, those whom the Lord loves, and who believes the truth, especially about the trying God and about Jesus the Savior. Sort of Nicene Creed stuff that we affirm every Lord's Day. The Spirit of Truth guides them and keeps them, so that they know these things are true. They hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, and they don't follow false shepherds, hirelings. But they know His voice because that anointing, as we saw previously, abides in them, and it teaches them concerning the way. What we're going to see today is that the key call for you and I, as for these saints is what he says in verse 28, it is to abide. We've seen Jesus, you recall, use this language frequently in the Gospels. We think of John 15, we will look at that momentarily. But we're going to look at this issue of abiding, because John has already used this six times in this epistle, just in chapter 2. Verse 6, 10, 14, 17, 24. He is this call to abide in God, have his word abiding in us to abide in following after the Lord. This is a key theme for John. This word abide, in verse 28, refers to a constancy or a permanent faithfulness. As one commentator I read this week put it, it's the call to stay put. But not just to stay put, but to stay put in living union, taking from day by day, the life of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ through His Word. So it has both a passive receiving element, but it also is going to involve an active element. It's not wholly passive, although it is completely dependent and reliant. There are things which we're going to see today, which we are going to be called to do to prepare ourselves that will, as it were, draw the life of Christ, the sap of the vine, the Spirit into us. But brethren, make no mistake about it, the abiding, the staying put in the vine, every fruit that comes, as we're going to see, every obedience of faith, every inkling of righteousness, every hunger after purity comes simply because it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is Him that He is the Holy One, He who is the righteous one. It is he who is working in you and I to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So brethren, as we keep these thoughts in mind, the call today as we're going to see is to stay put. To stay in constant dependence, living day by day, hour by hour on the life and the reality of the risen and resurrected Christ. Just to summarize the text as we begin, here's what what I would say. John's call to tell us is that the abiding, this remaining, staying put, it gives us a holy confidence, not arrogance, but a true confidence, both in this age as well as before the throne of God above at that last judgment. That we are called to then live in a manner so that when Jesus comes, we might still be walking and have that confidence. Guiding us, emboldening us, our prayers. He tells us here that those who are eternally predestined to life, to obtain righteousness, to be conformed to Christ, that they are those such as prepare themselves now. They run the race now on their journey to the heavenly city, they prepare for their arrival there, and they do not wait. To the end, because they are already born and citizens of that kingdom. And they follow that king now. Those who are born to righteousness, John is going to tell us, do righteousness. They can do no other. Because they hunger and thirst after righteousness. And there's also, as he's going to say, a continuity between being born of God, of His Spirit, and the corresponding perfection and the maturing God. That comes about when Jesus comes again. And therefore, they strive to not only be righteous in their actions, but to be pure in their hearts, in their affections. So let's look at these three things briefly in turn. Number one, I'm just going to call it, we'll call this the three R's. But the first thing I would have you see today here is the root. Of abiding in God. As as we said, the the call here, the command in verse 28 is now, little children, abide in Him. So, brethren, before we even begin, if you want to say, what is Steve's primary application for the sermon today? What is the take home? There it is. Abide. I want you to see why and how, but what I want you to do, what I want me to do, is to this week, more and more, to abide, hold fast, to stay put. In living union with Jesus Christ. Paul says that the John says rather this root of abiding in God, number one, has to do with being born of God, as children of God. You'll notice here that he addresses them, and now little children. This is that word technia that we saw back in chapter 2, verse 1, and again in verse 12, as I mentioned then. This is this is the word that, re, that John uses, refers to the children of God, the church as a whole. All of us are fa- fathers, young men, young women, little youths, the technia, uh, the, the uh, paideia. We are all technia. We are all the little children, beloved flock of Jesus, born of God, children of God. And that's what he's referring to. So he's referring here to the entirety of the church. All who are hearing. And he says, Now, little children, you abide, remain in him. Those he goes on and he says, so that uh he goes on in, in chapter three, verse one b. You'll notice, and he defines them here. He says, Is that they are those who are children of God. And in chapter in verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, Now we are children of God. So the root of, be, of abiding first and foremost is that it is for those who are born of the Spirit, born of God. You remember the words of Jesus, but as many as received Him, this is John 1 verse uh, 12 and 13, as many as received Him, to them gave He the right, the authority to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. Two chapters later in John 3, you remember our Lord Jesus. Verse 3, he says to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say unto you that, excuse me, that I say to you that unless man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then in verse 5, Assuredly I say to you that unless one is born of water, And of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Brethren, this may go without saying. I know this is something you've heard all your lives. That you must be born again. I hope we never grow tired of saying that. As a pastor, part of my call is to be an evangelist, as well as a pastor. And while it is vitally important that on the one hand, uh, we remember that our God has made covenant. I believe this in the depths of my soul. I am as a Reformed covenantal as I can possibly be. That He has made promises to be God to our children and our children's children after us through the obedience of faith. Not as a merit to faith, but as a reward that He Himself gives. It's a faith that He gives, He sustains all of grace, but that God, as it were, promises to reward the very faith that He gives and sustains. But He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. And God has said that his intention, his sure determination is to show himself and his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love, not only to those of us that have faith, but to us and through our children, because he is their God, and he will give them faith and sustain it and cause them to grow and mature. Amen and amen. We believe that. But brethren, I want to exhort you all to be praying, Lord God... May it surely be true of me. May I see the evidences and fruits of it, not because I doubt it, but because my heart yearns to see my children and all of us walking, as we're going to see in righteousness, walking in purity, showing the fruits of the Spirit, growing in it day by day, rooted and grounded in Christ, to see sure and clear evidence. Yes, the Spirit is working there, and I can see it. Brethren, I want to exhort you to pray for it, Pray, O oh God, for myself, for my wife, for my children, as I pray over you. O oh God, may we see the fruits of the Spirit. May I see the evidence, not that I doubt that we are born again, but brethren, I want it to be that we say, O oh Lord, I want it to be real and true. Nothing nominal here about it whatsoever. I want the world to... And all of the brethren around us who do not practice paedo-baptism, I want them to be able to see, by God's grace, and I believe God does too, that our baptism, as we baptize our children, is not just dead water, but that the Spirit and that the Lord keeps His covenant promises, that those who are baptized are walking in faith, and they are born of the Spirit. So brethren, pray that, because God will surely answer that prayer. He will give His Spirit in abundance to us and our children and to those that we pray for. We will be born of the Father, and we are born of the Father. But you must be rooted in Him. So brethren, that's the first thing. He says this is for little children. But notice what he says secondly. Not only is, is, is we've seen that being born again is, is, is there, but... This root of abiding is in beholding the love of the Father. Look at verse 3. I just want to camp on this for a minute. because, Brethren, this really is, I would say, the fulcrum on which this whole passage hinges. I would say if there's two things that the Apostle John wants you and I to see most earnestly in this epistle, number one would be what he said in chapter 1, 1 through 4, that... The gospel of our salvation is about the living word, the tactile, tangible word made flesh, the word of life. But secondly, I think the thing John most wants these saints, to assure them that they will not be moved, that they will not be led astray by false claims, he says this, behold, look at verse 3. I just want to let this verse sink into your conscience today. He says, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. This word behold conveys the idea of looking carefully at a thing in order to see it, to discern it fully, to discern it rightly. Kind of almost the idea of staring at it, (laughs) of studying it, meditating on it. Not a passing glance, not, as James said, looking quickly in the mirror and then moving on and forgetting. But he's saying, behold, look at it, be enraptured by it. And this word that is translated, what manner? The Greek pot of pain, it's interesting because this this is not a word you see often, but it literally means something to this effect. From what place, or to use the idiom, from what country? What what John is saying is, behold, consider, from whence comes such a love as this? This is unearthly. This is unnatural. There's nothing on earth that you could ever dream up such a gospel of a God who is holy, who righteously hates sin and sinners who despise him, and yet in that love sent his son to bear his wrath so that you and I would be children of God. Richard Baxter, Puritan writer, I think he said this so eloquently, he says, Is it a small thing in your eyes to be loved by God? Daughter, the spouse, the love, the delights of the King of glory. Christian, believe this and think about it. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of the love which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting. Of that love which brought the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory. Of that love which was weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified, pierced. Which fasted, prayed, taught, healed, wept, sweated, bled, and died. It is that love that will eternally embrace you. Brethren, our great God not only loves his saints, but he loves to love the saints. God doesn't do love you disparagingly. He doesn't do so grudgingly. It is with the deepest of affection that he has set his love upon you, his grace upon you for good. Often we tend to look for, you know, clear evidences of God's love. And and God, I, I will tell you, he gives abundances. I think if we're all honest, we see clear tokens of his love for us in so many ways, many things we don't perceive. But we see evidences of his kindness, of answers to prayers, of grace being given to us instead of justice, of mercy upon mercy. We look for things, but we need to remember, brethren, that the love of God is an objective fact that is not contingent on my subjective perceptions of it. Brethren, He has set His love on you for good, and the reason you know that is because of the reality of the gospel and the risen Jesus of whom John has spoken here. That word of life who came that All of the elect of God, all of Jesus, might enter into fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and with the saints. Who came that their joy may be made full. Who came that they would be able to walk in the light as He is in the light. And have fellowship with one another and have the blood of Jesus continually, effectually, permanently covering and removing their sins. I read something from Jerry Bridges this week also that I want to share. He says, The extent of God's love at Calvary is seen in both the infinite cost to Him of giving His one and only Son, as well as in the wretched and the miserable condition of those whom He loved. Fact is, is that God could not remove our sins without an infinite cost to Himself and to His Son. And because of their great love for us both, Of them were willing, yes, more than merely willing, to pay that great cost for the redemption of your soul and to bring you to glory. The Father in giving his one and only Son, and the Son in laying down his life for us. One of the essential characteristics of love is the element of self sacrifice, and this was demonstrated for us to its ultimate in God's love at Calvary while we were yet sinners. Brethren, this love, as we're going to see later in 1 John, is one that I also would pray that would cast out fear. You know, God's call to you and me is that as we grow and mature in the Lord, that we will be less and less motivated just by servile fear of of consequence, and that we will mature to the place more and more where we are just motivated by this love that he's speaking of here just beholding it where the love of Christ compels us. Because the reality is, is that how you view God, whether as a judge sitting there ready to condemn you, or you know a God who loves begrudgingly, versus whether you see God in truth as the one who lavishes love, who is holy for you, who does all things for your eternal blessing and temporal joy, even his chastisements, brethren, how you view God will necessarily color and impact the reality of your Christian walk. There are many brethren who spend so much of their lives in paralysis of fear. They may have trusted Jesus as Savior and cast themselves on him, but yet they have never really come to rest and believe in in fullness what John says here. They have never come to the place of being able to say that I am in the love of God. And so everything is for me, for his glory and my gladness that he would be glorified in me because he loves me so. Brethren, I want your fears to be removed today. So does John. First John 4, he's going to go on later. We'll talk about this morning. Either He says, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. He who is still motivated just by simply by the fear of torment has not yet, he says, been perfected, matured in love. That doesn't mean they're not believers. But the call is to maturity, is to abide, to where the love of Jesus is what motivates you, not from fear, but from how can I not? How can I not love and serve and live and die for such a God who has loved me as this and has promised to go on lavishing this love upon me? And he has the same intentions for my children and my children's children. Oh, brethren, I want to serve a God like that. Do you? We love God and we obey him to the degree that we behold him as he is in his glory and the light of his manifold perfections and fullness that are on display in the Son, Jesus, and his works of creation and providence, especially though, especially his love on display in the redemption of his people and of the world. Horatius Bonar one last quote here but I, this was this was too good to pass up. He said, "The love of God to us and our love to him works together to produce holiness. Terror, fear of torment accomplishes no real and lasting obedience. Suspense, you know, doubt and lack of assurance of our standing before the Lord, doesn't ultimately bring forth fruit unto holiness. The law can show us what is right and even condemn disobedience, but it does not produce in us the yearning to do what is right and the ability to do so, but the love of God, the life of God through the Spirit does. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness of will, but the free pardon of the cross uproots sin withers all of its branches, only the certainty of infinite love, of forgiving love, transforming love, can do this. He also mentions here, lastly, as far as this root, this issue of bonding, I called it bonding. The idea, maybe I was getting too, too carried away with my alliteration here, but the idea is living, as I said, in, in constant dependence upon the vine of the life-giving sustaining spirit of christ turn real quickly if you would to john 15 john 15 i know this is a very familiar passage to us but i think this is definitely going on in john's mind john was there when jesus spoke these words and this is probably the penultimate passage in the gospels on abiding just want to draw a couple quick lessons here I'm not going to read the passage in its entirety. I'm going to focus, first of all, on verse 1 through 8. Here's the first thing. Jesus is clear in this passage that there is no fruitfulness, whether spiritual fruit or even, I'm going to call, kingdom-commissional, dominion-oriented fruit in this life. There is no lasting fruit of our lives apart from abiding in union with Jesus, partaking of His life by His spirit words and prayer. Jesus says there in verse 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides, stays put in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Again, you can do much but it will come to nothing. It will be vanity of vanities. It will produce nothing that lasts and bear no fruit despite your much effort. But when it's Jesus doing it in and through us, it will bear much fruit. Abiding in vital union with Christ the vine includes, I'm going to say, three key things Jesus notes here. One is filling with His life, His Spirit. It, It involves submitting to the Father's pruning and Thirdly, therefore, yielding good fruits. So filling, submitting, and yielding. You as he says, filling with the water of life, with the life of the Spirit. Jesus, in other places, uh, John 4, um, earlier in John 14, he refers to the Spirit of God as the helper whom he would send. Right? When he ascends, the Father will send a helper, and he will be with you. you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come, Jesus says, and I will abide with you. So when he says, abide in me and I in you, the idea he's speaking is of this spirit, the water of life that he spoke about in John 4, which quenches the thirst like no earthly water can, which becomes in us a spring of water, springing up to everlasting life. This he spoke, John 7, he says, of the spirit which he would give, the Father would give to those, his people. This helper, the very life, the spirit of Christ It also involves, I said, filling with the Word. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me, you're you're drawing from me, and my words are abiding in you. They are staying put in you. Not just passing through you in one ear and out the other, but my words are staying put, they're growing deep, they're rooted in you. He says, then you will pray, and so on. So there's a filling with the water of life of the Spirit, and there's a, a filling... With the Word of God, that's part of this, this union with Him. God's Word is spirit. It is life, John 6, verse 63 says. So Jesus is clear that when we read the Word of God, these are not just letters on a page. They are God-breathed, Paul says in, in, in 2 Timothy 3. Breathed out, and they are alive, living and active, powerful to get down to the, the, the joint between bones and marrow. To shine the light of God into the deepest recesses of your soul and to transform you. Jesus' words, the words of God are life. They are spirit, Jesus says in John six sixty three. First 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, now we have received, speaking of the Apostles, we Apostles have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God, so that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God, and these things we are speaking not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now the natural man, the one who is not born again, the one who is carnal, dead in sins, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual, who is born of the Spirit, abiding in Christ, he judges all things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ in the Spirit-given and breathed Word. As you come to the Word of God, brethren, you pray, Lord, would you open my eyes that I might see glorious things, enlighten the eyes of my heart, so that as I read this, this is the Spirit working in and through to impart and make these words life to my soul. Brethren, you are abiding in Christ, and He in you, and the life of Christ will be given to you, through you, by the Word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It involves submitting also to spiritual pruning, not just filling, but submitting to the pruning of God. It's just clear, if you are in Christ, you will not be cut off, praise God, but you will be pruned. The Father loves you so much, that love of God by which you are children of God, He loves you so much, He's not going to let you be unfruitful. Brethren, pruning is painful. But I want to exhort you today, brethren, again, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. Is pruning worth that? Is it worth some pain? Is it worth some misery? Is it worth going through the fire, as it were, and that you may come out as gold, found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Is it worth it to you to be pruned Because of the love of God that has set you and destined you for glory, for conformity to Him. I pray it will be. And it involves then yielding, yielding ourselves. We yield fruits of spiritual transformation. Jesus says that the results we bear much fruit spiritual fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Brethren, again. Are those the fruits that you are earnestly seeking and praying for day by day? Oh God, go through that list, God. Make me more like that today. Let this not be a day in which I don't I fail to grow in one or more of these things. That I don't see more in me today or this week than I did last week of the blessed characteristics, the beatitudes that Jesus speaks about. I exhort you to pray those things. Make a list. Our Father hears you when you call, make me righteous, make me like Jesus, and he will give you the things that you ask because his word is abiding in you. And as Jesus says, you will ask and it will be given to you. Do you believe that? I assure you, our Father is even much more interested in your sanctification, and your glorification than we tend to be. And we yield the fruits of perseverance, again, through pruning. Perseverance produces patience and patience, character, hope. And this hope, Paul says in Romans 5, does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Spirit. (laughs) John's just saying the same thing Paul is. Character does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured upon us and in us. And it yields, as I said, the fruit of prayer. Jesus says, if my word's abiding in you, you're abiding in me. What's going to happen is you will pray. Not, I have to pray, but I want to pray. How can I do other? How can I do other but to call upon the Lord day by day, to seek Him? Oh God, give me more fruit. Give me more Jesus. Give it to my kids, to my wife. Give it to the church. And the vine, the life of Jesus will, as we stay put and ask, we will receive. We will seek and we will find. I believe that. It will yield the fruit of praise, rejoicing and blessing, mutual submission, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5 to be filled with the Spirit. Right? Say put in Jesus. Draw in, be filled with the life of Christ. Every room of your we are temples of the Holy, of the living God, brethren. Every room, the incense of the Spirit, filling, permeating it. No corner left untouched. Be filled with that spirit. And you know what Paul says there? Rejoicing with singing in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing praise, melody in your hearts to the Lord. Submitting one to another in the fear of God. Honoring one another. Looking out for one another. These are all the fruits of filling, brethren. of The, the, the divine life of abiding in Jesus. You know what else is a, a fruit of that filling? the victorious life that he talks about in Ephesians 6, about standing fast in the Lord. All of the armor of God, I'm not going to go through all those, but all the pieces in the armor of God, brethren, are things which come simply as we ask, Lord, this day, would you clothe me with this righteousness? Would you clothe me with the gospel of peace? Would you put upon my waist the garter of truth today? the helmet of my salvation. Jesus, this is all, these are just aspects of the Spirit of God working in me. Would you cause me to pray for all things, for all saints at all times, in every situation? Would you give me wisdom today, Jesus, to use the Word of God as a sword to say, it is written, I need the life of Christ in me. Look at these requirements, secondly then. John, as we've said, he's told us about the root Let me just briefly look at the requirements. There's just two things he mentions here, specifically. Number one has to do with actions, the other has to do with affections. Look at verse 29. He says in verse 29 of chapter 2, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. It's very simple. Righteousness, brethren, is about covenant fidelity. It's about being faithful about doing what is right as defined by the one who made the covenant. right? In this case, it's about doing what is right and good as defined by God's character and His actions as He's revealed in His Word. That's what righteousness is. And it says that God is righteous. Not only that He does righteousness, He does righteousness, but His righteousness is the overflow of His righteousness of character. God is good. God is just. And all that he does, and therefore that's what he does. And so John just says, simply put, if you know, as we do, that God himself is righteous, then here is a sure thing for abiding in him and, and for knowing that you are abiding in him, that those who are abiding in him are practicing righteousness even as he is righteousness, even as he is righteous. So they are sustained by God's power. They're enrolled in the school of Christ with true faith. Toward God, in God, from God. Therefore, they strive in faith to walk faithfully like God and with God. Trusting obedience to God's words and commands. He has shown you, O man, Micah says, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That resonates in the heart of those who are abiding in the Lord. They desire, as First John 2, 6 says, to walk ourself as He walked, as Jesus walked. They have within them a new hunger and a thirst for righteousness created by the Spirit and the life of Christ. And then they have the sure word of Jesus that those who hunger and thirst for that righteousness will be filled and satisfied by it. Praise be to God. So again, when you pray for these things, brethren, and I trust you will, you remind the Lord of that promise. I think God loves it when we use his words in our prayers. Father, I yearn for righteousness. I want to be righteous. I want to do righteousness. I long to see righteousness done in our church and in the world. Father, you have promised, Jesus said, that when there is this hunger that is from you, that we will ask and you will give us the things for which we seek. You will fill me with it. So, Lord, I wait for it and I know it's coming because you desire to make me that way. So they practice righteousness also. You notice the term, they practice. Brethren, practice is just simply something that you do over and over again because you want to get better at it, right? If you have something that you enjoy, you strive to get better at it and to practice it, to learn it more and more. There are some things I'll never practice because I just don't take any delight in them. Things... It reminds me, you know, like when I was back in uh, college, or in high school, I used to spend hours and hours. It was, it was kind of a waste in retrospect, but I used to spend hours and hours out on the tennis court. You want to know where Steve Morris was going to be after school? Most days it was going to be from about 3.30 to 5.30 out on the tennis court because I, I was just, I loved tennis. I love to sweat and just knock the tar out of a ball, and it was, it was fun. Brethren, I practiced because my affection was there. Brethren, in the same way, those who practice righteousness practice because they love righteousness. Secondly, they also pursue purity and hope. Notice what it says here. It says, chapter 3, verse 3, Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure fact is, brethren, that God our Father is pure, He is holy, He is set apart completely to His glory and to our joy in Him. He disdains all that covers and undermines His glory, His excellency, His supremacy, His light, whether in thought, word, or deed. God is holy, He is pure, pure of heart and therefore pure of action. And those who are blessed, you remember Jesus also says in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are the pure in heart, like God. They they yearn to not be corrupted by the things of this world, to not settle for things which in any way undermine or cover the excellency and the supremacy of the character and the work of God in thought, word, or deed. They don't want it in their lives. They strive to get the leaven out of their loaf, as it will, and out of their house because they want to be wholly set apart to serve the living God, to be living sacrifices to the Lord, consumed in the fire, consecrated to the Lord, pure and undefiled. Brethren, I I just think the simple application here is this, for you and for me. Brethren, if, if we are in the Lord, you are in the Lord, there will be and there should be a yearning and increasing zeal for purity of heart. As it were to clean our house of things that defile. I'm reminded of the words of Paul in Second Corinthians 6. Why don't you turn there real quick as we wrap. Second Corinthians 6, Paul just gives us one example. He says, Don't be unequally yoked, verse 14, with unbelievers. What fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness? What communion is light with darkness? And so on. Skip down. There's a promise there in verse 16. God says, if you will be set apart to me as temples of the living God, pure and set apart to me, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. So therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch What is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. And then look at the application, verse chapter 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Brethren, is that not what John has just told us? Those who are pure of heart, who abide in the Lord, that they purify themselves as he is pure. They, let the, they have opened themselves to say, Jesus, shine your light into the darkest areas of my life. Expose sin, deal with sin, but whatever it is, I am willing and ready to get rid of whatever I need in my life to be more like Jesus. That's what he's saying. Be ye holy, for the Lord your God is holy. What are the rewards of this? Very simple. Lastly, John gives two things here. Number one, He says that if we abide in Him, stay put in Him and draw from Him, the first thing we're going to have is confidence. Notice what he says in 2.28b. It says that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. It's very simple. When Jesus comes, when we see Him on that great last day, We will not be ashamed, but we'll hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He will say, you have been a good steward. You have used the gifts and the talents I've given you, the grace I've given you, and you have strived in holiness and purity. You have strived to see my kingdom advanced and my name glorified among men. They will have confidence and not have need for shame. Now, brethren, again, That confidence is not rooted in you having attained to blameless perfection. It's not. If that were the case, where could any confidence or assurance be for any of us, right? Brethren, as I said again, this is the confidence that says, I have, by God's grace, I have learned and grown to where the fruits out of my life that God himself has given, that he is blessed. There is more fruit, growing fruit, but it is Jesus in me. I have known so many people who get laid into their lives and who have seen that all their works were wood, hay, and stubble and that they come so little fruit because they have strived all their lives to do more and more, to be more moral, to do it in their own strength in the flesh rather than staying put in the word of God and in prayer and the obedience of faith letting Jesus in his light bear the fruit because they have forgotten that Jesus says apart from me you can do nothing brethren my exhortation to you is don't fret yourself abide in Jesus look to Jesus hold to Jesus and the fruit will come it will come and lastly look what he says here conformity to God's character let's look at chapter 3 verse 2 We want to talk about the greatest good news of all here it is It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Brethren, the day is coming in which you and I who are in Christ will behold Jesus with unveiled face, with your own eyes. You will see him whom your heart has loved, who has loved you. You will see him in that burning glory, whiteness, and you will not be destroyed, but you will be Blessed beyond it. You will be made glorious in his glorious presence. Brethren, my call to you today is that you would yearn for that. Take his words here. That is my hope, and it is a sure hope, that I will see him with my own eyes in resurrected glory. And I will be like him. And the application, he says, is that as that reward comes then, because I will be like Jesus in eternal glory in a world of perfect love where there is no sin where the delight and the desire of my heart is filled up eternally to overflowing where I will drink freely of the rivers of the water of life without end and of the fruit of the tree of life brethren is that sufficient motivation for you and I to pray oh God make me pure, make me righteous oh Jesus you do it Brethren, I hope it is. All of these things come to you as the overflow of the love of God. So my prayer then in closing is simply what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And I'm going to pray it for you. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him who is able and willing to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that it works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Oh God, thank you for this love that you have lavished upon us so rich and free. Father, it is unearthly. It is unnatural what you have done and what you have promised to go on doing for your people. Father, give us grace that we will just go on believing and beholding in the face of Jesus, beholding in the word of God and the gospel. What manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And as we behold this, Father, would you grant us the grace to keep and preserve us always staying put, abiding in vital living union with Jesus Christ our Lord. In whose name we pray, amen.